versus the world productions nerds on the internet what more could you ask for www.vtwproductions.com listen to the emperor's court sundays at 6 p.m eastern your three-hour break from internet porn www.vtwproductions.com as you all know we're here for stargate sg1 Stargate SG-1 actually started because of Stargate. How many of you know that? How many of you actually have seen the original film? Some fans? Good. Well, we do have a special guest today. You may have seen him in one of the other panels, but I would like to present to you today, Mr. Tony Amendola. Hi guys, oh, Tecmate, uh, Jaffakri. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's wonderful to see you guys. Thanks, Sam. Um, I'm going to sit down and, uh, or do we have a hand mic or? We do. We do have a floor mic. Okay. Um, uh, so if you want, go ahead and take your seat. Okay. And then we're there, we'll just lead it off to our moderator for further Terrific. questions. Great. Round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh, you have to be really intimate. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. And just in case I want to move around. We'll go ahead and start off with one question, and if anyone else has any questions, please start lining up. We do have a line moderator on this side, so if you want to go ahead and head over. Um, my first question to you, Tony, is um, given some of your history that you've been in some sci-fi movies before, um, do you prefer to have work with sci-fi movies, or is it something that you just happen to land? Uh, you know, initially it was just something you happen to land. Uh, you'll find uh, with a lot of the guys who end up, uh, and gals who end up doing uh, uh, sci-fi, that they uh, came out of the theater, uh, because some of the language is more uh, technical and sometimes a little bit difficult. Uh, and uh, just simply the, the size and the scope of it, the ideas, of sci-fi are, uh, I think there's a parallel to that. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, because of that, uh, initially my experience with sci-fi is that, you know, I, I, I went to the opening weekend or the, you know, first several weeks of Star Wars. I was in school in Philadelphia when it first came out. And, uh, you know, Blade, I loved Blade Runner. I, I loved uh, um, uh, Alien, uh, but I, I didn't have like a huge uh, interest uh, in some of the serials, uh, it was more, I used to watch, you know, Twilight Zone or uh, uh, Alcoa Presents or, uh, you know, some of those odd shows. And it was through friends of mine, when I eventually came into L.A., who were working in, in, the, in the genre that I started watching it. Uh, and then I eventually, you know, got work in it. And, uh, and then I started paying much more attention to it and, uh, you know, really have enjoyed it. I, I don't have a preference. I don't treat the work any differently, uh, you know, whether whatever genre is in, I try to ask the same questions and try to, uh, you know, attack it with the same uh, uh, energy. So, uh, you know, I love doing uh, uh, 
uh, sci-fi. I mean, you do enough, uh, you know, sort of lawyer shows where you're playing a judge or a lawyer or, you do, or a talking head. You can't wait to get a funny costume on <laughs> and, and, and ask to, be, to use your imagination, you know, uh, and to, um, to imagine and, and also to examine what's going on now. Because, I mean, we all know, you guys know far better than I, that science fiction is not really about the future, it's about the present. It's about our present and what we're afraid of, what we hope for. It's all of those things that make, I think, science fiction really sort of potent uh, and interesting. So. Thank you. What motivated you as, as, as from a child, or just as you mentioned before, seeing some of those movies, those sci-fi movies, that kind of really uh, pushed you towards um, these types of acting? So is there anything in, in particular that, that can, you can remember? Well, uh, oddly enough, I had, a, um, I had a strange thing happen. I must have been about 11. And back, back then, uh, you know, this would have been like in the uh, 50s, early 60s, really, and uh, daycare, was an after-school job because my parents worked, and that was my day. I, I never realized it, but they, they felt better knowing that I had something to do because I would get in trouble. Uh, so I, I had a paper route. <clears throat> Always had a paper route from the time I was like eight years old. But this particular day, it was Halloween, and I wandered into a barber shop that was verging on, it was the beginning of a, a it used to be a real separation. There were beauty salons and then there were men's barbershops. And this was a men's salon. It was a new thing. And I happened to walk in, and the guy I used to deliver a paper to, who was an old uh, friend of my elder brother's, uh, he had a friend there who had just finished makeup school, you know, for film, theater, you know, and television. And, you know, and I remember he had some stuff out, and I was looking it all over, and they were, and they were chatting. He said, well, for instance, he said, this kid, I, I could make him up and you know, uh, you know, in an hour, and, and he'd look great. And so the guy who owned the barbershop said, well, come back, come back when you're done with your route. And I did. And he made me into a werewolf. And it was amazing. So that was my Halloween, you know, when I was 11. I was a werewolf. And it, I mean, he put surgical glue, in, and it was just all, and I had a lot more hair then. <laughs> you know. And he sprayed it all silver. And if you saw, I was a teenage werewolf, or if you saw the original, any of those werewolf ones, that's exactly what I looked like. I mean, it was just wonderful. And I scared everyone who went around, and my mother was just like, what, what, are you, <laughs> what did you get into? And, uh, and it was all great and dandy until no one told us how to get it off. <laughs> so we had a tough night, but we figured it out with some, you know, hot... Uh, compresses and uh, uh, oil cuts through some of that stuff, you know. Uh, but that's where it began, oddly enough. But I didn't, I wasn't a high school actor. Uh, I was more into athletics. Uh, and it sat dormant. And it was like this, this thing in the back of my mind. Because initially I thought, oh, okay, I want to be a makeup artist. And if you had asked me, you know, after saying that I wanted to be an archaeologist, that then I wanted to be a makeup artist. But I had no, really no artistic skills in that way, really. Uh, so eventually when I, got, I was in college, I literally stumbled into an audition for The Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest. And I went to a college where there was four women for every, every man, so they, they were very happy to see me. <laughs> and I was very happy to see them. 
so I, you know, I spent uh, you know a lot of time there, and it was quite social. I talked a little bit about that in my uh, panel yesterday. And eventually, it was only then that I gradually realized that there was something important, and there was something that uh, I wanted to do. And I sort of just you know worked very, very hard for a number of years, and eventually uh, I find myself here in front of all of you, and it's still something I'm immensely grateful for, and I don't take for granted, and it's a dream come true, so thanks. Very good. Now, it's known that you're also working at uh, Once Upon a Time, another TV series. Um, there is also some somewhere that you're working on in uh, on a show called Conception, I believe. Continuum. Oh, Continuum. I'm sorry, not to be mistaken with not Stargate. Stargate Continuum. <laughs> well, I can talk a little bit about it. Continuum, and I believe that plays in uh, Canada, correct? On yeah, premieres in Canada tomorrow night, so you can look for it on cable. Eventually, we'll find a, a, an American window, but it's ten episodes of a new sci-fi series that uh, is contemporary sci-fi in that it's time travel, but it also incorporates the Occupy movement. So it's very, very interesting. I play the leader of, uh, uh, basically the, the premise is that it's 2077 and governments have failed, and so every, all the countries are being run by corporations. And I play the leader of a group who's, who uh, um, try to essentially bring back the voice of the people. Unfortunately, you know, uh, they've been pushed to the edge and now it's through violence on, on the scale of 9-11. Uh, so, uh, so they're very sort of gray, at least my character called Kagame, is a very, very gray uh, hero uh, in quotes. But uh, it's very interesting. Lexa Doig is in it, uh, who you may know, uh, and uh, Rachel Nichols, and it, we did 10 episodes. We just finished uh, several weeks ago. So. Very good. Um, with that as well then, having played all these roles and having been in that type of business for a very long time, I'm assuming that you've probably wanted to direct, is that correct? Yeah. Now, with that said, there's also been rumors out there that you are going to Sundance Director's Cut, or is there... Uh, well, I'm going to Sun Sundance Director's Lab, which mm. is a program in Utah, you know, Robert Redford's, and it's the develop for developing directors. I am not directing. I have, uh, I have directed, but it's all, all been in the theater. Uh, I, I've never really had a strong desire to direct film or television because it is so uh, so technical in many, many ways. Um, and I, I'm afraid I get lost with the actors. But, uh, you know, unless I could come up with an idea that I wanted to write and develop, because the real power in television, as, as I learned as an actor, are the writers. In film, it's much more the director. But in television, it's the writers, and the director may have been hired just before the actors. You know? uh, there used to be a, a great, there was a casting person for the uh, Star Trek series. Uh, his name was Ron Shurma, who doesn't, he doesn't, uh, uh, he's retired now. But I'll never forget, one of the first auditions I had in LA was with him. And I came in, and I came out of the theater, so I thought I was auditioning for the director. You know, and I, I would consequently, you know, all my conversation was to them. And the producers, the writers, you know, I, I didn't know, you know. And, and Ron was reading with me. And the entire time we were reading, <laughs> I'm reading with him here. And the director's sitting right next to him. And the producers and the writers are all here. And, I'm, and he really liked me. So, <laughs> and I'm, I'm reading with him. And the entire time he's going, 
meaning meaning open up and <laughs> make the producers and the you know the producers and the writers see you don't don't audition for this schmuck he just came into the room you know and uh, it was uh, a really interesting lesson uh, you know he taught me something I didn't get the job that time but I, I eventually did I eventually did but. so then directing do you foresee yourself perhaps directing something in the future maybe you know, it would have to be something really unique and someone who really knew me you know, uh, because like I say, it's, uh, it's quite uh, technical, particularly, particularly, you know, in, in, in this genre where so much right now is green screen. Uh, you know, the Once Upon a Time, uh, we had two or three days of green screen on there, and it's quite, quite technical. Uh, and uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind uh, giving it a shot at some point, and if I were on, I mean, if I were on a series, uh, now, uh, and once it was established and there was sort of a pattern to it, then I would, uh, I would like to do it, yeah. Very good. We'll go ahead and open it up to the uh, first question on the floor. Hi. Hi. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was wondering what it's like to be a Jaffa from putting the golden thing on your head for the first time to the redemption from the gold all the way to being tied into story with the Ori. Well, do you have 10 years? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, being... <clears throat> do, do you know that there are uh, Jaffa or Jaffa cookies in Australia? Boy, I got just like boxes and boxes and boxes <laughs> when I went to Australia. Uh, <clears throat> what is it like? Uh, you know, it, it was really great because I tried when I first heard the notion of what they are, you have to f make it make sense to yourself. And to me, it made sense uh, a little bit in the uh, sort of samurai tradition and also in the Roman Stoic tradition. Uh, never getting too high, never getting too low, and it's just carrying on, uh, you know, with your life and, and, and uh, uh, denying, not truly denying the senses, but not giving way to them. But the samurai tradition, the warrior tradition was quite helpful you know, the Bushido and all of that. Uh, now I'm trying to think, and also what was really compelling was the, the notion of being free. The notion of, of, of fighting for your freedom and living in a society uh, where, uh, at least Braytac has the, what he thinks is a truth, and, and realizing that, you know, everything around him is almost illusion. It's almost a little bit like, um, oh God, the Keanu Reeves, uh, uh, what is it? The Matrix. I mean, he, in a strange kind of way, it's the Matrix. Everyone is convinced that they're gods. Everyone's convinced that, and he finally sees, you know, and then who he trusts that secret with, uh, secret with and, and who he tries to protect uh, was v very interesting and became really sort of potent. Uh, and so I really, really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the writing. I, probably my favorite episode was uh, uh, Threshold. Uh, which is, does the backstory of Tilka myself when he, when I finally reveal to, uh, to him and, and call him out on he, he knows the truth when he's just been made first prime. There's a great scene where <laughs> we're, we're training in the snow. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Um, but uh, so you, you try to, you try to attach, uh, again, like I said earlier, is that, you know, sci-fi, is about the present, and, and that's not true uh, for anyone more than it is an actor as they're trying to make sense of it. You're not trying to get into some theoretical uh, mind game. You're trying to, 
you know, give you a desire that will carry you on a scene, you know, that will fuel your, uh, your passion. And, that, and tying it back into the present is very, very valuable. I, you know, I love the writing on Stargate. Uh, uh, you know, once they got over the notion of trying to kill me, <laughs> and I realized, I mean, I, I, probably around season five, I just, or season six, I, I just sort of took a deep sigh and realized it would be anticlimactic to kill me now. You know, because you've been sort of hinting, and I wanted to die, and you wanted to kill me. And so, you know, gradually, you know, it's funny. When this is in the air, the other actors come up to you, and they say, oh, I hope they keep you around, and I hope they keep you, and I hope they don't kill Braytac. And then you always have to be careful when you, when you say that, and you're an actor to another actor, because they ended up killing them. <laughs> so poor Carmen got killed, and Terrell, Terrell was the toughest one. I mean, she didn't see that coming at all. And, you know, and they, you know, tried to give a sort of surprise, and, and they ended up getting rid of, of her character, which was very sad. I loved her, and, you know, I used to go over to her house and have dinner and drink a lot. So <laughs> I really missed her around. By the way, I just saw her uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she has a young child now. Yeah, a beautiful, beautiful little girl named London. Uh, quite, quite beautiful. Um, and uh, so the Jaffa, it, I mean, it's a noble, a noble it's, it was a noble cause that I could get behind and it sustained me for 10 years. So thank you. Hi, Tony. Hey. Um, first thing I'd like to say is thank you. Um, my daughters actually grew up sitting on the sofa with me watching your show, watching Stargate. And it was a great bonding experience. But what we really appreciated was the, um, I'll say, the tolerance and the temperament that Braytag brought, the balance of wisdom. And that was amazing. So first off, thanks for that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm really curious in your new show, Continuum. Now, you had mentioned the Occupy movement and 9-11. So I was just really curious. Do you see your new character as more of a liberator and patriot or actually a terrorist who's after anarchy and extreme reform? Uh, you're talking about continuum now, yeah. Uh, you know, definitely I have to see, you know, if, you, if I'm playing the character, I have to see him as a, uh, uh, a liberator, uh, if you're playing the character. I think he's a troubled character, because when, if, if over the course of it, you realize he's come, he didn't start as Che. He started as Gandhi. So he started, there's, there's a thing, there's a, some earlier flashback scenes when he's with his family and he's trying to preach sort of a nonviolent sort of uh, approach to, uh, uh, and uh, eventually, you know, it's just like stamped on. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, boots and, you know, he's separated, his, his, his wife is taken away, his child is taken away, and he's, he's left with nothing. Uh, and hopefully some of that will come you know, will be clear. Uh, uh, but he is, I mean, I certainly don't advocate his means. I don't. But, you know, uh, when you look at, at uh, a lot of uh, film, television, uh, et cetera, all great literature, you know, it's not about, um, it's always about pathology. It's always about extremes of emotion. It's never about, like, you know, balance, you know, uh, because it, it wouldn't be interesting. Uh, and so he's pushed to the edge, and he does go over the edge, just... You know, like, uh, you know, it's interesting to see motorcycle diaries, to see, you know, these guys. You tend to think of revolutionaries only when they became revolutionaries, as, as if they came into the world that way. And it's always interesting to track, just like it is, you know, with the, uh, with the leaders of the American Revolution, to see who they were and what gave them the courage to push beyond the norm. So, uh, that's a little bit true for Kagami, but he's also a, a twisted guy, too. 
I don't want to give you the wrong idea. <laughs> he is a little twisted, but, at, which is great. It was wonderful because I was filming uh, Kagame in, uh, while I did the last episode, they, they changed the schedule so I could do Once Upon a Time. Which, you know, so Geppetto and Kagame, I mean, it was so wonderful <laughs> to, uh, you know, a guy who's all about uh, uh, um, giving, uh, you know, a child a chance and protecting, you know, a kind of innocence and another guy who's all about ideas. And if it takes a million lives, he somehow in his mind thinks it's okay. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a, an interesting thing. But you, you, yeah, let me say one other thing. As an actor, you often have to be an advocate for your character. You can't, in, in the wider picture, it's not like we're dumb, we, don't, we can't see the evil or, or the, uh, you know, the danger of some of these people, but when you're playing them, you can't, you have to, you have to believe them, you have to somehow give them, give them their, their say and let the audience decide whether they're right or wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, what is it like in the beginning as playing Master Baritek using a sort of pseudo-language, per se? Uh, yeah, it's always interesting to, <laughs> to deal, to, to understand with the, uh, which sort of, uh, it's a little bit like speaking Klingon, you know. Uh, I mean, there was a Bible, there was a sort of Jaffa Bible. But eventually we twisted it and changed it a little bit. But uh, it was great fun. I, you know, I like that. I like, I like that, you know. And I, I thought we could have used it more. I thought there should have been scenes where, you know, Tilk and I sort of, you know, start talking behind their back. It's like being in a room when people are speaking, uh, I don't know, uh, Azerbaijani or something, you know. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you have no idea what they were saying. But, uh, but it, it's fun. It adds a kind of other dimension, you know, that you realize... Um, that English is not really their, uh, their first language or something. It's sort of fun. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, Tony. Hey. Uh, I was curious about, you know, the, the process and how you became Master Braytech. I mean, uh, how, how did you get the role? Uh, okay. Uh, it's actually a good... Some, some of this will be repeating for the people that were here yesterday, so I just... I beg your indulgence, but uh, I had just finished The Mask of Zorro, and uh, I got back into town probably the end of May in June, and then the first audition I had was for this odd sort of show where they want you to play a 133-year-old sort of warrior. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> you know, I read the script, seemed fun. Richard Dean Anderson, fine. You know, good. You know, uh, MacGyver. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but then I saw at the bottom it said, Vancouver, Canada. Now, about this, is, this was 1997, so about 1983, my wife and I took a vacation. We flew, we were working in San Francisco at the time, and we flew to Vancouver, and then took the train across to Banff, which is, at, which is in the Canadian Rockies, and then had a car and went to Jasper. So it's right all in the Canadian Rockies, uh, glacial lakes, um, uh, Lake Louise, stunning, stunning wilderness. And we had a wonderful, wonderful time. So we thought, ah, Vancouver. So, you know, I went out and did the audition. The fact that I had just done Zorro helped, I think, enormously because there, you know, there were very good actors in the room auditioning, I see all the time. But, you know, I had just done this film and they thought, and I had done a good audition. So you often see that. That's why when 
there are like little clusters. When an actor or an actress does something, all of a sudden you see them in more and more. It's like everyone's trying to ride. Uh, so, oh, yeah, you never know. Oh, and Zorro was a, you know, quite a nice success. Uh, it wasn't out at the time, though. So uh, I got it, and I thought, oh, great, Vancouver. My wife and I had a great time. And then it dawns on me, 133 years old. I'm going to be in a makeup chair from about 4 o'clock every morning. <laughs> so I go in, I do my costume fitting, it's all great. Uh, I'm just about ready to sneak out because I'm not going to mention it if they're not going to mention it. And <laughs> they said, hey, Tony, uh, Jan Newman wants to see you, the, uh, the, uh, the makeup key. And I go in, and I'm thinking, oh. I say, hi, I'm Tony Amendola, I'm playing Braytag, 133 years old. And she looks at me very carefully. She, she really gives me the once over. You know, and then she goes, you'll be fine. <laughs> oh! <laughs> and I, you know, it dawned on me, all they were going to do is, you know, put the little thing, give it a little nail gun in the forehead, and that was it. <laughs> uh, um, so it was great. That was sort of how it happened. And uh, often, as an actor, you are told, okay, this is a recurring character. My experience is any time someone told, tells me it's a recurring character, it means they're trying to negotiate my rate down <laughs> of what they're going to pay me. Stargate never said that. I did one episode. You know, it was close to the end of the first season. They wrote me another new episode right at the beginning of the second season. And then there was one in the third season. And then there were two. And then there was three. And then there was a season where I did five. And they just kept writing for me. And it was, uh, it was delicious. And I think a big turning point uh, that sustained me is uh, probably in season four or so, uh, Brad Wright, who was the main writer, uh, wrote uh, an episode called Threshold. And he, uh, he was so kind, he came down just before I left and he said, uh, he said I don't say this, he says, because I don't, <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to stroke actors too much. He said, but I did not trim a single frame of your stuff in this episode. So he said, thank you very much. And I thought, wow, that's new. <laughs> you know, because forever, you know, we, we, we shoot stuff and then we go see it. And, or we see it on television and inevitably something is cut. You know, uh, and that, and so I think he really grew to like me and like my character. Uh, I remember one time I had an offer to do Cyrano. And, uh, you know, I accepted it and, uh, well, thanks. I accepted it and, uh, you know, I had got the dates cleared and then I got a call that they had changed the dates of a Stargate episode. And I was so sort of upset because I wanted, and uh, I spoke to him a little bit and he just worked it out. He pushed all my stuff onto my days off. I had, I was working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday uh, on the show. so. I went two different weeks and filmed Monday, Tuesday, during the day Wednesday and got on the plane. And he, he worked it out and that's, uh, you know, really wonderful when they do that. Because actors love to work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hi. I was Hi. just wondering if you could ever be first... Uh, first... Uh, first prime? Prime. Prime. For any... Gould God, who would it be? There was a woman in a bathtub, as I recall. <laughs> okay. There were there were some really really wonderful wonderful women characters. Uh, <laughs> although I, I tell you, another great character I loved in it uh, was uh, Musetta Vander. She played uh, Tilks. Uh, wife in one episode. I mean, it was very odd. Tilk had three wives. Did you know he was a polygamist? Did you know? 
yeah, t- Sally Richardson, who's here, was the original. And then I forget who was the other one. Um, uh, you said it was his wife in the alternate reality. It was a fireman. We were firemen. She, and she was his wife in that uh, um, episode. Uh, whew, yeah. I wouldn't mind serving his first prime to Amanda, too. I have to admit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just the Apophis guy I had a problem with. If there were, you know, a, a nice, benevolent female, I'd be there. I'm okay. all for it. Thank you. Hi, Tony, again. Uh, thanks for coming out and uh, talking to all of us today. Um, I was wondering, we all know about the on-screen relationship between uh, Teal'c and Braytac as student and mentor. I was wondering if that gave any sport, any sort of a special angle to your relationship with Christopher Judge. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think it did. And I talked a little bit about that uh, yesterday, but it's not, you know, as a, you know, an actor, you're, you read the script, you, you understand the character, and you're happy to get the job. You go in and do the audition alone, yourself. It's not like you do it with the other actors. And then you realize that, oh, everything I do is based on this person, or the majority of what I do is with this person. And that was Chris. So the first person, uh, you know, I, when, I, when I got on set that day, I kept looking, I kept saying, you know, okay, so who's playing Tilk? Who's, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea if he was a scrawny little kid. I had no idea, you know. And there was this man. And, and he was curious too, you know. So we went up, I shook hands, and I remember we just looked at each other, and we knew it was gonna be fine. And it was just great because we had some really, really intense stuff. Because in you know in that first episode, it's all about what are you doing with these humans? You know what are you doing? You know, uh, and uh, and so it was terrific. Now Chris, uh, most of you have probably seen Chris. You know he's just like this. He's this, you know, outrageously you know uh, uh, attractive, beautiful, uh, intelligent, walking id. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he's just got, you know, he's so much life in the guy. And uh, so occasionally he's gotten me into trouble. Uh, you know, there was a convention in Atlanta one time that I, I don't remember as much of as I should have, you know. Uh, and also, you know, there are, you, are you a basketball fan? Yeah. Well, there used to be the Jordan rules. You remember Michael Jordan, the, the one Detroit used to have to mm-hmm. stop the greatest offensive basketball player ever? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, there are some of the Judd rules. And the first Judd rule is never stand downwind after lunch. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, so he always had to keep an eye on Judd. But he was a, he was a cut up and, uh, but you know, the biggest heart in the world, the most generous man. Uh, uh, and that whole set was that way for me because as a guest star, uh, particularly early on, you don't know the people, and they tend, my experience is they tend to compress everything, a lot of the language stuff, a lot of your heavy text scenes in the first couple of days. The reason they do that is because the other actors, the uh, regular actors, are just getting the script. And they've been shooting all week, so they need time to memorize and prepare. Uh, and so you're a little on edge, you know, you, you think, oh, people are judging you, and they are, they are. <laughs> You know, and but they were so always so generous. Amanda, in particular, uh, was so uh, complimentary and and welcoming, and Chris, and so it made the job a lot easier. And the best thing about doing Stargate is eventually, unlike going in for one and out, 
okay, you go in, you do your stuff, and you leave, is that you eventually knew the temperature of the set. You knew people's general behavior, so if someone is acting like a jerk, you think, oh, well, they're having a tough day. You knew the lay of the land, and when a show runs that long, they eventually end up getting rid of uh, the squeaky wheels and the troublemakers. So it makes for a wonderful sort of uh, ride. So. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Tony. Thanks for hey. coming to Phoenix. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm a filmmaker as well as a Stargate fan, so when I buy the DVDs, half the fun is watching you guys on set, behind the scenes, all that stuff. And it looked like it was a great set to be on, super fun, family kind of atmosphere. Well, it My wasn't always family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see family in that way. I thought you meant family rated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you guys obviously uh, cohesed into a family, yeah. which happens on set. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about, because the, the show obviously went through a lot of cast changes with Michael Shanks leaving at the end of season five, coming back season seven, Richard Dean Anderson leaving, new people coming on for the last two seasons. Maybe you could talk about kind of how the, the tone of the set maybe changed at all because of that? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, the other interesting thing of popping in and out is that people have good years and bad years. And so Michael, you know, uh, he needed a change. He needed, you know, he was, it was so intense. His work was so intense. He's really good. I mean, very few people handle dialogue. That di you want to talk about hand, uh, speaking jargon and, and, and just getting the, your mouth around stuff. I mean, Michael is amazing. And he has a new show. It's coming out on, on NBC. I think it's, it's going to be in June. So look it up. It's a, a doctor show. And he's the lead. He's one of the leads anyway. Uh, but, uh, so when Michael went away, I, I had very little contact with Corin, my character. Uh, I, my, my contact with Corin used to be, you know, hey, hello, you know, a handshake, and then when I'd go to my, uh, you know, the Stargate apartment, his script would, would be there. And it's only in conventions that I finally got to meet, uh, you know, Corin a bit, and he's a great guy. Uh, ben, uh, Ben, Ben, I think, had some of the arrogance of Richard, too, you know. Uh, you know, he had the same sort of thing, but he didn't quite have the humor of, uh, of, uh, of Richard. But he made the show continue because all of a sudden we had two fan bases. You know, we, and I used to joke, well, you know, is it uh, Starscape or is it Fargate? Is it, what do you go? But who was wonderful, I thought, too, was Claudia. I thought Cla Claudia was... You know, she would crack me up so much, you know. Uh, like we were doing one, I forget, it, was, it might be the last uh, episode that, that I was in. I was sort of in the hospital and, uh, oh no, Chris is, no, it had to be a one, second to the last I was in. I was in the hospital bed again and I've been attacked by someone. And it was a tough scene because they had, you know, six, eight characters around me. It's very hard. It takes a lot of time to photograph, you know, groups of two and three and then individuals and everything. And they're trying to keep it compressed. And it was getting a little spread. And, and Claudia said, well, I can fix that. And she just sort of <laughs> jumped around the bed and just started kneeling. And you know, I hadn't even met her. And I thought, oh, good for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so you know, it changed. Uh, to this day, you know, some people will say, oh, you know, I, I missed Michael. And I missed Corin. And oh, God, thank God. Ben was such a wonderful, you know, so everybody's got their opinion. And the reason, uh, I think, it is a kind of affection that you have towards the show, that uh, you either appreciate the change or you don't. 
It's just, it's like getting a new brother-in-law or sister-in-law. You know, sometimes you just sort of shake your head and other times you, you just meet the person you think, oh great, I trust them. I think they're terrific. And that's the way it was on the set. But none of it disrupted anything. And the fact that we got 10 years out of it is just, you know, a testament primarily to the writing. You know, we must, because sometimes I, I feel like fans get the wrong idea. You know, that this stuff, of course I know that you know this, but you have to remember how strong the writing is uh, on that show. It's just amazing to me, so. Thanks. Thank you. Hello. Hey. Um, you were talking about the episode that you, where Christopher Judge or Teok was going between human life and Jaffa life. Um, that was one of, actually one of my favorite episodes because you also played uh, his stepdad, I believe? Yes. Um, who was dying of kidney failure. You right. were trying to. Um, both of you were both stoic in most of the season, so when this uh, episode came up, were you guys both excited about it? I mean, you guys were actually showing some emotion. If <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, we were. Uh, uh, it was very, very interesting to do some of that scene, you know, the scene with the fire uh, and stuff, and to be in, in an alternate reality is always uh, sort of interesting. But I don't, uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember being any more excited about it uh, than I was by other episodes. I, uh, I liked a lot of the fighting episodes. I liked a lot of the, uh, you know, I love working with Lou Gossett. Uh, around my birthday, which is in August, uh, I, you know, Isaac Hayes was doing an episode and, you know, got to have happy birthday sung to me, you know, by <laughs> Isaac Hayes, you know, that's not bad, you know. Uh, so there were plenty of that, that, there was the variety of, you know, of having sort of an, an earth persona. Uh -huh. And I, you know, I did enjoy that and that was in Tilk's mind in a kind of way. Uh, so that was interesting and, uh, and where that went. And I, I think he used to call me, I think he called me Bray in that too, Bray, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, so it was, uh, it was fun. But there were so many that were, uh, were fun uh, to well, do. Well, I can understand why you would like the fighting scenes too, because every time I'd see him, I'm like, don't mess with Braytag. Don't mess with Braytag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi. Hey. Um, I had a question with the, you were talking about the fighting. What was the most difficult physically thing to do? as Braytac? The most difficult physical thing to do is Braytac. Uh, I remember, uh, it wasn't really that difficult, but it was uh, sort of tricky. We had to be very, very still. There was a scene where, uh, uh, it, it's a great scene where we've been ambushed and there, everyone has been killed. I mean, they used hundreds of extras surrounding us and it was an aerial sh shot and we were right on the Fraser River. So that, uh, you know, the was sort of a lapping tide sort of thing coming in on us. And it was the scene where Tilk and I are, are sharing the symbiote. Uh, and that was, uh, that was great fun and hard to be that still as, you know, as the, <laughs> the, uh, the waves are coming in and hitting you in the, in the head. But uh, physically, uh, I always just really, really enjoyed the challenge. And because of the fact that the, with the boots and with the cape, the metal cape, and with so many of the other aspects of it, the, probably the whole outfit weighed 45 pounds maybe, that wow. no matter how hard I worked during the day, when I took it off, I always felt like I was ready for the evening. You know, it always, you know, if you're a basketball player, we used to wear ankle weights. You know, and when you took those off, you felt like you can jump higher and your legs just felt, it was a little bit like that with that outfit. Uh, 
So occasionally, you know, having to shave my belly, you know, for the symbiote. <laughs> it's just sort of, and, uh, uh, and hearing Richard sing show tunes in a glider for two hours. <laughs> I think that's permanently hurt my hearing. Yeah, so, but, uh, uh, but anyway, no, it, it was a treat. And I've had uh, some... The hardest work, I, you know, I did a couple of films of sci-fi films that were on the Sci-Fi Channel that were shot in Bulgaria in winter, at night, in the snow. Now, that's cold. That's cold. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to give you guys the wrong idea. We are so happy to be working. And you gotta, we're in a profession that, you know... Uh, on any given you know, day, 90 to 95% of the members of the union aren't working. So just to be working gives us a huge uh, uh, tolerance. And uh, um, occasionally, I mean, it all has, I remember doing, uh, I did an arc on Dexter, and uh, the first scene I had was with Michael Hall, who he thinks, I mean, he knows I killed his mother, and I'm sort of responsible for his addiction to this thing, and uh, I don't know who he is, he comes into a bar, and we, that whole day, 12 hours, we beat up on each other. That's all it was, it was just two actors that whole day. And we didn't use any stunt guys. They were there, but then they realized we were okay. And So that day, <laughs> I came home, had a little bite to eat, had a hot toddy, and took a muscle relaxant and went to bed. Now that was a hard day. <laughs> but I, I have to say, I still went to sleep with a smile on my face. Even though I was going, oh, oh. I mean, it was still a, a, it was worth a day's work well done. I mean, you wa we want to work. We want to provide something that you guys you you know, will enjoy. We, uh, and, and we do, I think the majority of the actors feel like you care and you can tell the difference. Because there's some actors who will just think, well, they don't know the difference. You, you do. And it's not even, um, it's not even conscious sometimes. There's like, uh, excuse my language, but there's a bullshit meter in us. And because, oddly enough, actors are surrogates for your, uh, for your daydreams and for your, you, you know, your fantasies and for, your, uh, uh, and for that sort of human sort of desires, that we don't let those actors into our deepest selves unless it's, there's something truthful about the emotion or the belief or something. I, I, I really do believe that. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Hi. I have another question. Sure. Um, last year we had Leonard Nimoy here, and he explained the whole genesis behind the, the, the Vulcan hand gesture. And it got me thinking about some of my favorite sci-fi characters' uh, iconic gestures. And I have to ask you, what was the history behind the Hammond of Texas? <laughs> I, you know... <laughs> uh, I think it had to do with, you know, Richard talking about him and then seeing him and then realizing that somehow his Don's Dome paralleled my Jafamica, which used to call it Jafamica, our little... <laughs> that was, you know, Rich, that was Peter Deloise, you know, his joke. But uh, uh, that somehow, I don't know, it just came, but it felt so right, you know, that it was oddly reverential and respectful, but it was also sort of humorous. Uh, and uh, that's where it came from. And it was, someone asked me just recently, did they write that gesture in the script? Did you? No, 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 that was... And once we found it, I, you know, uh, we brought it back, you know, three or four times, and it was, it was great fun. And, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that that's one of the things that tickled you, because it tickled me. And it's not often the case that, you know, that 
an actor's favorite moments are, are an audience's favorite moments. So, thank you. Thank you. So, when you were in full armor as a Jaffa, how long did it take you to get in there, and how much do you think it weighed? Well, like I was saying earlier, it probably weighed 45 to 50 pounds. The boots were particularly heavy. Uh, um, but, you know, you, you, you need a little, a little help. And then there was a great episode that made it a lot easier. They, they wrote an episode where uh, Terry... Uh, it's funny, he's an actor in uh, Continuum, another... Terry Chang, I believe his name is. He's, uh, uh, he played a, a monk. And it was sort of a Japanese-themed episode. Uh, and I went in, I have a consultation talking about, you know, that I, f I believe it's time for me to pass it on to the younger generation and to move on. And we have this great, great sort of discussion. Well, to enter into this sacred thing, I said, you know, uh, Braytac needs to take his boots. He's not going to be a guy who's just going to, he has respect for, you know, a holy place. And they said, no, you're, you're right. So they had to figure out a way of getting my boots on and off pretty quickly. So they developed this sort of uh, snap system that was really well hid. And uh, so consequently, after that, season five probably, it became easier to get in and out of. But previous to that, it would take, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you needed, a, you needed someone to help you, you know. So there was a great, there was a great dresser. And in, uh, I mean, they wrote a play called The Dresser. You know, because they, they are people that help actors enormously. You know, uh, and our dresser, his name was Barry. And, you know, you end up spending more time with Barry than, than you do with, other, with your camera operator. And it's sort of interesting. But uh, it weighs about 45 to 50 pounds, and it took about 20 minutes to do the whole thing. And the makeup wasn't bad. Uh, uh, that would take another 20 minutes. But, you know, they generally bring you in... They generally bring you in, so if they were starting at 7, they'd bring me in at about a quarter to 6 in the morning. So that means they'd pick me up at about 5.30. So how are those hours for you? Would you get up at 5.30 often? Which means you have to get up at about 5 a.m. Is that, what time do you get up for school? I'm homeschooled. Oh, you're home? Ah. <laughs> ah. You're perfect for, for an actor then. <laughs> you have any other questions? Nope, that's it. Thank you. Mr. Amendola again, hey. thanks for coming out. Sure. It's a pleasure to uh, see you here. Um, you said in acting there are some good years and bad years. Um, it was pretty apparent in the show that funding was pretty low toward the end of the series and then here and there throughout the series. What was the mood of the actors and the, uh, you know, the crew those years? Uh, you know, I, I didn't really notice it that much, but you know, I, it's always true that uh, uh, the longer series runs, uh, the salary, uh, salaries become higher for everyone around, and consequently, inevitably, uh, networks try to actually do the series for less money, so there's always a little pull. I never really felt that. Uh, um, I have to say, honestly, I never felt that, and that's probably a question that would be uh, that either Chris or Michael or Amanda or Richard, Ben, uh, would uh, probably have a much better inside track. For me, it was never an issue, you know. So. Thanks. Sure. 
Oh, good to see you again. Hey, but, uh, see. <laughs> something. Uh, I know what you got there. What you wearing there? Did yeah. you make that? Yeah. Oh, I was on the uh, from yesterday. I had the whole helmet. Yeah. yeah that's all. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. 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 Um, so he, got, he, ha- he has he has an apophis helmet. You know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so it hasn't been brought up uh, yesterday or today. But had you seen the original movie before you started? Of course. Yeah. You did. You did see it. Oh yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, who was that woman? There was a great, uh, the, the, uh, the archaeologist, the woman, the older woman, uh, 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 Vivica... Catherine. Catherine, yep. Yes, Vivica Linfords. I thought she was sensational in it. Uh, and I, I mean, I liked, I, I have to say that I thought, to me, for my money, and Kurt Russell is great, but Kurt Russell played one serious note. He played what happened to his kid. And that, you, you know, I mean, his whole, and Richard, to me, Richard, to me, was the key to the success of the series in many ways. Because, I mean, you're always tricky with Richard, because you go in and you realize you got to see Richard Dean Anderson, the star of the film, and it's a three-page scene, and you have all the dialogue. <laughs> and Richard would just look at you. And he'd just not, and you just ramble it all off, as if you knew. <coughs> and then, right at the very end, he'd figure out a way of taking out a little pin and he just pierced the balloon, <laughs> and that was it. And all the hot air would just be released. So um, that, number one, and the humor Richard brought to it, and I thought, I've always said this too, Richard it was brilliant at two things. He became the surrogate for the audience, you know, that he was the skeptic. He himself was the skeptic to all of this stuff, so consequently the audience could, could get behind him. He wasn't afraid to be foolish and funny, and most importantly to me, uh, you know, s- some actors lead by their seriousness. You know, I am a serious actor, and I only do serious things, and trust me, just watch me. And Richard <laughs> is a reluctant actor. He'd much rather do the comedy. He'd much rather, he's sort of reluctant, but when you need him, when he's touched, and when they write something personal for him, boy, can he deliver, I felt. I really felt he could deliver, and it was all the more powerful because he's been a cut-up the majority of the time. So you always thought, I always thought, wow. Look at him, look at him, you know, because he always tried to say, no, no, you know, I'm, uh, I don't do that. I don't do serious acting. It's but, funny, you more or less answered my follow-up question that was completely okay. random, but I was going to say, other than uh, singing in the glider and having to endure that, uh, what was your <laughs> other favorite Richard Dean Anderson moment? <laughs> I saw Richard in Germany maybe uh, last year, and, I, you know, I was sitting maybe here, and he was sitting down here. And, uh, you know, we were at a press conference, you know, and there were some, I think, uh, some of the other, you know, sci-fi people from various shows were there. And Richard sort of leaned over and he looked at me and, and he looked out and we, we just answered some questions. And then he went, <laughs> like he just, you know, it took him five minutes and then he finally realized, oh, <laughs> you know, and that, I don't know why that tickled me because he, he operates in his own, uh, his own world. Uh, um, <laughs> What else? I, I don't know. Uh, Richard gave me a great weekend, my wife and I, a great weekend one time when he got the stomach flu. <laughs> so I so was really appreciative of that. You know, uh, um, um, I'm, uh, what else about Richard? Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, he's, he was always pretty, uh, pretty wonderful. Uh, uh, but you had to watch him in a scene, because he's very, very clever. You know, some of the better actors in in theater often, you know, the line loads dictate the importance of the actor. Because generally, people like to watch who's speaking. 
In film and television, that's not true. Because you, uh, the theater is more democratic in that way, that you, if there are three actors on a stage, even though a person is speaking and your attention should go to them, should you choose to feel like, oh, he or she is boring, you can always look wherever you want. And you can't do that in film and television. Because, uh, you know, that vision, that choice is made by the director and the editor. And consequently, Richard, you know, can become a focus of a scene even though he hardly has any lines on it. You know, so he, and he knew that. He, he was very, very smart and very, very clever. And good film actors sometimes will go through a scene as, and as opposed to seeing how many lines they had, they, they can see how many lines they can get rid of. That it really, not necessary to them. And uh, I remember doing, God, what was it? I think it was like uh, Chicago Hope, or it was, it was one of those episodes, and I was sitting around with the producer, and one of the regular actors came up and had a, a, a quick conference, and they were talking, he was a little animated, and the producer was like, calm down, calm down. And <laughs> he came to me afterwards, he says, you actors. I said, what, what? He says, like, this guy's got a great job. You know, he's making blank, 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 you know, a week. And he's asking me, he just did a scene, he got to play a scene with James Earl Jones, and he's asking me, when we cut the scene, will it be 50-50 coverage? And I assured him it would be 50-50 coverage. But you have to understand, I paid James Earl Jones $150,000 to do this episode. So I am going to focus on him. <laughs> you know, and that's simply the reality. And, uh, but, you know, uh, Richard also, you know, needed the break. And he, you know, he went away, and that's when Ben came in. And it's always so great. You know, you notice the, some of the old-timers like Don and myself. We, we pretty much, you know, <laughs> pretty much stayed as long as we could, you know. And uh, uh, because we've been around, and we know that, you know, an actor's like, life is like a trampoline, if they're lucky. Otherwise, it's like a hit and run. <laughs> You're out there, and you're laid down. And so Don and I, we, you know, we would just smile. We'd have lunch together and, and just you know, talk about, you know, how wacky the kids are sometimes, you know. Um, anyway, that's a roundabout answer, I forget. I know, you, you didn't ask that question, no, did you? Uh, <coughs> that's what I thought. I went on so long, the person probably, <laughs> it's gone. Anyway, go ahead. We, we do have time for one more question. Right, cool. um, my question is going to be about the props. Uh, from the Eureka panel, uh, Sheriff Carter had kept a couple items of his. Were there anything that you kept from your display, and how much, like, did I have props a, I cost? have a couple of the, I'm sorry, what was the last uh, bit of the, like the general cost of the props, how'd you get them? Were they oh, oh, custom uh, or? well, you know, I, I only have some of the uh, head things, you know, that I wore, that's it. So there was no cost, they were, they were worn out and they used to do, you'd get three or four episodes, you know, episodes out of one and then they continued. Uh, so there was no cost, but that was all I have. Uh, I'm trying to think, yeah, I'm certain, I wasn't up there for the very final episode, so I didn't get to do, I didn't get the scavenger as much. <laughs> so, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, now, are we almost done? I believe so. Okay. Now, I do have to say something to you guys, because I know, you know, I, I, I did a Voyager, I did a Star Trek, you know, and yet, yet I'm associated with Stargate, and I know you guys get pulled. So I do want to tell you one thing. You ain't nothing but a Trekkie, <laughs> rocking all the time. You ain't nothing but a Trekkie, rocking all the time. But if you ain't seen Stargate, you ain't no friend of mine. <laughs> Tony Amendola, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming.
last thing, one last thing. Uh, please come and see me. I'm going to be signing over there. Just take a look, come and say hello, and I'll be uh, here tomorrow for the early portion. I think I take off probably about 2.30. So if you haven't been around, please come and say hi. Fantastic. Ciao.